Hi, I'm Julie Miller, and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast is a hands-on look at reconciliation, what it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-Indigenous people like me can take as part of this national project. As you can hear, I'm a settler. I immigrated to Canada in 2008 and now live in Ottawa on the traditional unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. This week marks two days of observance in Canada. Most of us know about Remembrance Day on November 11th. The date that most of us might not be aware of is November 8th, National Aboriginal Veterans Day. Indigenous people have signed up to serve and defend Canada in impressive numbers throughout the history of this country. Many have lost their lives for it. During the First World War alone, more than 4,000 Indigenous people served in uniform despite challenges such as having to learn a new language and travel from remote communities to enlist. Many became successful snipers and reconnaissance scouts, and Indigenous service members have become famous for their roles as code talkers during the Second World War, translating sensitive radio messages into their Indigenous language so they could not be understood if intercepted by the enemy. And many, many Indigenous soldiers became decorated war heroes. On the home front, Indigenous communities donated money, clothing and food to help with the war efforts, and even granted the use of portions of their reserve lands to allow for the construction of new airports, rifle ranges and defence installations. In many cases, those communities never had those lands returned to them. For veterans, there were lasting challenges too. When Indigenous service members returned from the Great Wars overseas, they were not provided the same benefits as other veterans, such as land, loans and education. And still today, while serving, they experience racism among the ranks and sometimes criticism from their own families and communities for signing up. This criticism is not surprising. While Canadian governments deployed Indigenous people to defend Canada overseas, back home, those same governments worked to erase the very same people's cultures and languages. And let's remember, First Nations people were not granted the right to vote without losing their Indian status until 1960. It is incredible that so many of them still felt the duty to serve Canada. There's a lot to dissect here. So in today's episode of Everyday Reconciliation, I'm speaking to retired Sergeant Derek Montour from the Ganyankahaga or Mohawk community of Ganawage, southwest of Montreal. Derek has been a member of both the Canadian Armed Forces and the US Marine Corps, and he is one of four advisors of the Minister of Defense on systemic racism, discrimination, LGBTQ2 prejudice, gender bias, and white supremacy. Sego, Derek, and welcome to the show. Sego, So thank you very much. Thank you. Can you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit more about your background and where you grew up? Yes, uh, my name is Arunhianos. Um, it's a Ganyakkeha name, which means the place where the sky and the earth meet, or uh, the place where two worlds come together. I'm, uh, That's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, my English name is Derek Montour. And uh, I'm from the Ganyakkeha community of Ganawage, which is located just south of Montreal. And um, I have a question about um, you joining the Canadian Armed Forces, but I just wanted to provide a little bit of background for our listeners. So Indigenous peoples have enlisted in impressive numbers um, during the many wars Canada have been um, involved in. And during the First and Second War, they enlisted in, in very impressive numbers. I read in the report of the Royal Commission on, on Aboriginal Peoples that this came partly from a sense of loyalty, tracing back to the alliances between Indigenous peoples and the European nations early on, before the 19th century. So wartime service for many Indigenous people was a continuation of those alliances, but coming back from those wars, Indigenous veterans were often excluded from the benefits granted to other veterans. 
such as land and allowances. Um, what drove you to join the Canadian Armed Forces, Derek? Um, it's, it's a very complex question, I'd say, uh, Ellen. Um, so first, I, I did grow up in here in Gunawage. Um, it's a... Uh, uh, I, my, my father's family uh, goes back uh, many, many generations as Kanyakahaga um, uh, people. Uh, I think we, mm -hmm. my aunt did a uh, family tree and it goes all the way back to, to at least the 1600s when they started keeping records. Uh, my, oh, wow. Yeah, but my mom's family is actually from Glasgow. Uh, she was born mm -hmm. in Glasgow and she, uh, she emigrated here when she was a child, uh, I think th three years old or so. Uh, so that's where your traditional name comes from, from uh, two words? Yeah, yeah, actually, that's exactly where it comes from. Um, and perhaps how I'm trying to, to, to meld two, two worlds in some ways. I'm, I'm not sure. It's the path that the creator has given me at this moment in time. Um, mm -hmm. but, but growing up here, I think uh, 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 it's, it's, it was difficult uh, because our community... As many uh, as many people know, is very uh, has very strong beliefs about uh, about membership and about uh, in identity and about our our strive to um, establish our own self determination and the rights to that. And I mean, there was a lot of efforts in the seventies and uh, even even so far as the sixties to really mm -hmm. establish ourselves as a as a community and kind of uh, recapture our language and traditions because of all of the efforts at assimilation. So I grew up in this, this, this uh, culture where sometimes within the community, um, I, I had experienced discrimination or, or, or racism. Uh, and outside of the community, I experienced discrimination and racism um, mm -hmm. from opposite sides. So I think that alone, as you grow up, you, you become wondering where you fit in some ways. Right. I had five of my uncles that were um, in the, uh, yeah, all, all of them were in the uh, American military. And our community itself has a very strong military presence. Um, why is a tough question, like why serve a colonial power? Many people think that way. But I guess part of it is uh, the Ganyakahaga people have always been warriors in many ways. Um, for me, uh, I grew up in a time where I wanted to protect myself. I, uh, I wanted to uh, learn how to defend my people in many ways. Um, and that, that drive, I guess, I mean, school didn't hold the same particular interest at the time. Uh, I went to a private high school. I did really well. I had started in uh, in uh, in college to to go on into business, but it I, I wasn't driven in the same way that the appeal that uh, the military drove for me um, mm -hmm. to be able to serve, to be able to uh, uh, go to other countries. All of those, I think, were was an appeal, and I think that's why I ended up joining in, in the long run. Mm -hmm. So, so that was pretty common in Ganawage when you grew up? Yeah, at the time I, I had joined, I think I could name six or seven other, other guys that had joined around the same time as me, either before or after me. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had, I had my brother and two cousins, all, all four of us were in the United States Marines all at the same time. And this was later, okay. of course. And the, and the reason that um, many of you joined the U.S. Um, Marines, the Kanyankahaga people, can, can choose to join either the Canadian or the U.S. Yeah, I, I actually had joined uh, the Canadian Armed Forces first. It had been my intention to, to, to go that route. I, I had looked into it and, and I felt the Royal Montreal Regiment would be a good fit for me. I ended up uh, signing up uh, and, and my mom and dad encouraged me while you're going to university uh why don't you go into reserves so right mm -hmm. after high school i ended up signing up with the rmr um yeah and, and i and i it's... took to it like a like a duck to water you know, I, I really it, i felt challenged i felt a, 
uh, I felt the the um, excitement of being in in the military to me and in an infantry regiment. So mm-hmm. you know those two uh, two days out of the month, and then eventually during the summer we went to a, to a training. And that's when it things change. Because then you, um, when you were employed for summit training in 1990, the so-called Oka crisis exploded. Yeah. Uh, a centuries-old land dispute in Ganasatage over an area called the Pines that included a Mohawk burial ground, and it erupted over over an expansion of a golf course. And the Mohawks of Ganasatage put up a roadblock, which triggered the provincial police, Sûreté de Québec correct its own blockades and checkpoints, and the conflict escalated. It caused the Quebec uh, Premier Robert Bourassa to request the help of the Canadian Armed Forces, um, which you were then a member of. So um, when this crisis erupted, was there a risk that you would get deployed to OCA? To be honest, I didn't know. It, I, was, I was a private learning how to be a, a, a service member at the time. I would never have imagined that Canada would send its military against an indigenous community, particularly one I was, I was part of. So like, I honestly, I, I, mm-hmm. I never, it, it didn't, it didn't occur to me so that it was a shock when it happened. Um, even as mm-hmm. it was leading up uh, with, with the SQ and Garasadagi, we were very well aware of what was happening and um, we had gone to training and, while we were at training, that's when the blockades came up here in Ganawage. And, um, and and then the military came in and it and, and at that point we even heard, you know, I heard uh, fellow soldiers how they would react. And I guess it was a like a stab, stab in the heart, because here I am mm-hmm. ready from, from your non-indigenous yes, yes, yes. colleagues. Here I am fundamentally when you join the military, you are joining with the intent that potentially you could lose your life in the service of this country. So here I am prepared to do that and taking that decision. And I'm, I'm sitting side by side with a guy that says um, we should go in there and kill all them savages. And knowing, oh, so and knowing that I'm from Ganawagir, knowing that, that Ganasadaga is also Ganagahaga people, you know, and, and there's, that's one, but that's the one that sticks to me even now after, you know, 30 years later, I can still see his face, but there's other comments that, that, uh, that you, that we heard, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I think at that point we had, um, we had grouped together our, all the people from the community that were on this training. And it was about five of us at the time. And we, we had asked our command uh, to, to be relieved, to be able to go back, not relieved from duty, but to be able to go end the exercise early and go home, which we were, we were mm-hmm. afforded that. And we ended up making our way back home here. So whether mm-hmm. there was a risk or not, I, I don't know, because I don't know, you know. I knew the Van Dues at, at that point, but it was right in the middle after I only found out who actually had gotten deployed. And um, mm-hmm. worried or not, I, I didn't, because I just, honestly, I was just shocked that even the military would have been used against uh, uh, against First Nations people. So, Yeah. What would that have meant to you and your family and your community if you had been deployed there? I don't think I'd be able to do it, Ellen. Um, I'm not sure they're... they're like I know later on in uh, in the in the uh, in the Marines, we were taught about uh, uh, you are able to, uh, I guess, not have to execute an unlawful order. And to me, uh, that would be an unlawful order to have to attack my own people. Right. Um, so I can't yeah. imagine um, even the difficulty of uh, of other let's say, uh, cultures having been called upon to, to attack their, their own people. I'm not sure how, you know, like if I was Afghani um, being asked to go um, attack in Afghanistan, I'm not sure how I would handle that, you know, because uh, it's a foreign country. Mm-hmm. So in, in this case, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I didn't have to be confronted with it because um, I was able to come back, mm-hmm. come back here. And once I got back here, you know, I passed through the uh, the lines where the army was. 
I passed through the concertina mm-hmm. wire and, and uh, on our side, the tank traps and the patrols that were going and, and made it back to where my family was. So we had evacuated my mom and some of my cousins and my aunties, my daughter, my grandmother. Not everybody had left, of course, uh, but we had gone to a hotel uh, in Dorval. So some of us were asked to, to protect them in that way. So that's where, where I had gone. Mm-hmm. So your sense of duty to Canada and your sense of duty to your community were just completely impossible to both follow at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, so you left and then you spent that summer um, defending your family and your community. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you joined the United States Marine Corps instead. So what motivated that transition? Well, I, I think after, after, let's say, a resolution was achieved, uh, or, or, or at least an agreement was achieved at 1990 during that summer, um, and we were able to come back home, um, I kind of didn't, knowing what had just happened and what Canada had been pre- prepared to do, I couldn't imagine having to be put in a position, and that was my community, but I couldn't imagine if, if, if they were so willing and so easily able to do that for my community, um, knowing that it can happen again, I guess, wasn't really an option for me. Um, so, so at that point, I, I drove down to Plattsburgh, essentially, and uh, in New York State, and uh, I, I talked to a Marine Corps recruiter there and, and, and said, I want to join. And I think his first question was like, why? What's wrong? What's, what's wrong with you? Uh, um, you know, and I was like, nothing. Like, I'm perfectly physically fit. Uh, I've passed high school. Um, I was in college at the time. We ended up delaying my entry until January. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, but I had still driven the idea in me to, to, to serve, to protect myself, protect my family. And I decided if I'm going to do this and I'm going to go active duty, then I might as well go all the way. And to me, the Marine Corps um, was the epitome of the services in that way. And uh, the, I, I felt that the Marine Corps offered the most challenge um, that I could challenge myself to. So I think it was December 30th, 30th he rolled around and my recruiter called me up and, uh, and said, when do you want to go? And I said, well, whenever you tell me, he says, all right, I'll pick you up in two days. I took a, very well to it. I was uh, meritoriously promoted at boot camp. And uh, again, in Japan was my first duty station. I got meritoriously promoted again. And, uh, and a third time in California where I was stationed next. So I was, I was, uh, oh, yeah, I was wonderful. a corporal very young in my, my career. Uh, sergeant uh, by, uh, by four years in. Um, and mm-hmm. I ended up becoming a, a recruiter uh, around uh, six or seven years in and, uh, and ended up getting stationed in Michigan. And at that point, my, uh, my life changed a bit. So my, my dad had passed away and uh, he had been battling cancer for three years. And I think that's what really, uh, thank that. you. Uh, that's what really, I think, made me take a look at what was I doing. And um, I looked at my own drinking and and experiences and i think trauma that i had blocked out for so many years um kind of started resurfacing and i needed Mm -hmm. uh i needed to figure a way to to heal and and it wasn't going to be in the marine corps so uh so i got a Mm -hmm. i got an honorable discharge and moved back home and um and i went on a healing journey this was was in uh 2000 uh, 2001. Okay, so 10 years. You served for 10 years yes, in the U.S. Yes, Marine yes. Corps. Um, so I had I had joined uh, January 3rd of 1991, and I served till April 13th of 2001. Um, Can, how was that experience different in the U.S. Marine Corps? I mean, the, the U.S. had the same track record with Indigenous people pretty much as Canada. So potentially there could have been a situation with a Mohawk or in another indigenous community there as well. Possibly. Uh, I had actually looked into it and, and the, the last time uh, the U S military had been used on indigenous people had been quite a while. Um, most of the interventions happen with, uh, within state, uh, FBI, uh, DEA, um, you know, 
organizations, you know, going against AIM, for example, American Indigenous Movement or Indian Movement, I should say, um, local police, uh, state police. So it was very, very rare that I saw that uh, that the the actual armed forces were used against uh, populations. Uh, obviously, in the 1800s, they were used. I mean, everybody can remember Custer, of course, and uh, and all of the yeah. others. So, so for me, that that felt different. Where where it felt like the chances of that happening were much lower. Now, the United States is still very much a, uh, a colonial system. So is you know is Canada. So is any of the Five Eyes fundamentally. So there was that conflict. Um, but I think I was I was young enough where I didn't I didn't really start grappling with that intellectually and and trying to to. I guess align my internal beliefs to theirs. I was more about um, trying to find my own way in life and trying to, um, I guess, uh, be able to defend myself. I was I was dealing with a lot of those kinds of things. So I think I think mm-hmm. for me that's why it was different. And, and at the end of it, uh, I I needed a change to try to uh, to better myself. Did you meet any racism? Um, apart from the incident you mentioned during the Oka crisis and the, the racist remarks that um, your fellow um, soldiers made, otherwise, did you meet any racism in either the Canadian Armed Forces or the U.S. Marine Corps? Uh, for sure, for sure, in Canada, um, while I had served, not so much in the RMR itself, or at least not that it was apparent. It was later on, and, and in the RMR, it was reserved, so we would go in for a night. Um, you know, for training in the reserves. And it was only when I had gotten, uh, um, you know, when we stayed overnight, for example, at the two weeks, that's when you hear it in the background, you hear where it comes out in people and you, you ignore it, but I, I've grown up with it. You know, uh, I remember as a kid being chased uh, with a baseball bat just because I was, uh, I was, uh, um, so to me, those are realities that, that I end up growing up with in this place called, called Canada. Um, in the military in, in the United States, there certainly was a lot of racism, but honestly it was less against indigenous people that I saw. And it was more between black and white, um, mm-hmm. it, huge amounts of racism in that way. And, and, and I think the history of the United States from that respect, um, is is larger uh, a lot of first nations in uh, uh the united states uh, were wiped out you know um and 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 moved to certain communities so the the population joining um i didn't see a whole lot of first nations while i was in i certainly saw a few and you know like anywhere when you all of a sudden hear that there's another another first nations you kind of like hey how's it going i'm from so and so <laughs> you know, uh, there was a guy from Aguazasne, I remember. Uh, his last name was Round Point. And there's guys from the community. So as soon as you hear that, you you automatically gravitate to that, um, to, to other people. Um, so, it's like yeah, yeah, basically. So, uh, so I always appreciated that. But it's hard for me to remember if there was uh, specific racism to the same degree I saw it in, in, in Canada. I know that they had often a, a way of saying in a Marine Corps, there's only green Marines. Uh, there's no black Marines or white Marines. There's only green Marines uh, or camouflage Marines. Um, and, and it's a good thing to say, but it's not always always in fact, I guess. That's the best way. Yeah, right. So when you moved back um, in 2001 to Ganawage, um, you mentioned that you came home to... Um, to heal after some trauma, do you want to explain what you? Yeah, mean sure. That? I mean, first, I, I grew up in in an alcoholic home. My father was an alcoholic. His father had died when he was uh, when he was only nine years old. So my grandmother had uh, nine children. My father was the oldest male, and he he was actually a twin. And my grandmother actually had my uncle Louis T in her womb when my grandfather passed. So he was only 36 years old, and, and he uh, he was an orphan. Um, um, I believe a, a 
the product of the residential schools or, or at least uh, certainly Indian day schools. And, and my father was certainly mm-hmm. a product of the, the Indian day schools as well. Um, and, mm-hmm. and the Indian day schools were, were similar to residential schools in that there was still abuses happening. Uh, there was still uh, assimilation efforts. Um, the whole purpose that, you know, my father was forbidden to speak Mohawk. Um, he, mm-hmm. every time he, they spoke Bohawk, he was, he was beaten for it. So my grandmother mm-hmm. had, had taught them to, uh, to only respond back in English. So he understood Mohawk, but he, but he, or, or Ganyakeha, but he didn't speak it. So for me growing up, I, I didn't hear it in the home very often. So you weren't able no, to learn it? No, I didn't. I, I, like we, we had a Ganyakeha class during grade school and primary school. But um, uh, so I learned phrases. I learned the Hondakari Wadekwa. I learned certain things, but I, I, I couldn't carry on a conversation per se. So, um, so I think growing up in an alcoholic home uh, and my father, you know, doing the best he could with what he knew at the time. And, and that's how I, I've come to understand it. Um, you learn certain behaviors as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and for me, so I, I had started drinking when I was, when I was young, I was, uh, I think my dad quit drinking when I was 11 and I started when I was 13. Uh, yeah. Oh, so, my. so, so I had quickly, um, learned how to deal with emotions through either suppression or through, through alcohol. Um, I was also, uh, sexually assaulted when I was 16 years old and I had, I'm very sorry to you. hear that. I, I had actually never told a soul until I was 29. Um, I blocked it out and I tried my best to, to, to ignore it from happening that it ever happened. Um, so these things I think, think added to it. And then there was all of what happened with 1990 that I never probably really processed. Um, and the images you, you see sometimes flash in your mind and, and nightmares and things like that. So for me, those things and then uh, leaving the military, um, I had been uh, married while I was in and divorced. All of those uh, experiences, I think, led me to a place where I had been suicidal, whether I had, uh, I had uh, one night was ready to, to, to do it, actually, Ellen. Um, I had, uh, oh, yeah, so I had created sorry. a video for myself to explain why to my, to my six-year-old son, why I'd killed myself. Oh. And, um, oh, no. and I was planning it. I was ready to go. And I received a phone call from my younger brother and it was about three in the morning and he had never called actually, but he, uh, he called and said, what are you doing? What are you up to? Um, and I told him and, uh, and, and we started talking and, and for whatever reason, I don't even know what we said that, that morning. But uh, I had hope again, and I started rebuilding hope step by step after that. So when I moved back, I, I you know, I had gone through treatment already twice. It, it, you know, tried Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was helping. But I, I was so broken for so many things that I, I ended up going with uh, traditional healing. Ended up doing in the sweat lodge and purges, and taking traditional medicines, and and doing that path. In, in Garawaga, Garawaga, in your yeah, community? Yeah. yeah. Um, with a counselor here at actually uh, the organization I work for. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, help, help, me, uh, help me along that path. And, and step by step, I, I built those connections again and, and really found um, a good mind, as they say, along that journey. It's been a long journey, but, uh, but, a, but a fruitful one. So it's been, it'll be 20, yeah. 20 years this December, uh, December 23rd. Oh, that's Thank congratulations! You. That's that's quite an <laughs> achievement. And twenty years you've been working also for this um, the Ganawage. How do you Sagode pronounce yok it? The Genhas. It means we are helpers, or we are helping. Ah, community services. Okay, and now you're the executive yes, director. Yes, I've been the executive director for the last ten years. That's wonderful. I'm I'm glad Thank to you. hear um, that things that things um, changed when you moved Thank back. So. I wanted to talk a little bit about the work you do now um, uh, in this panel that you're on, the minister, the minister's panel. Um, 
The number of Indigenous members of the Canadian Armed Forces is under th uh, 3% and it's lower in the upper ranks. Um, and because of this, uh, this low, um, unproportionately low number, uh, the former Minister of Defence appointed you as one of four advisors to improve efforts to support Indigenous, Black and people of colour, along with the LGBTQ uh, plus community uh, and women at National Defence. Can you tell me a bit more about that work? And do you see it as a step toward reconciliation at an institutional level? So the first question, um, I was approached by, uh, by Minister uh, Sajin last year, uh, last December, and he had, he had given me a call. I, my name had been referred to him. And, and we started talking and I told him about my work as the executive director. I've also been, been sitting on a, as a regional representative for the National Advisory Committee for uh, Child and Family Services Reform. I, I was serving as both mm -hmm. an alternate or, or as the primary. I, I work with the uh, the First Nations of Quebec and Labrador Health and Social Services Commission. I'm actually the the chairperson for that board of directors. So um, I've been involved in trying to to create change at um, let's say at at a a uh, systemic or uh, systemic discrimination or systemic racism level. Um, we we all are are well aware of Joyce Eshkwan and. Uh, and the systemic discrimination mm -hmm. that happens in that system, and and in yeah, and, and and I think the TRC, uh, I guess, attempts to to create change are a, are a product of that. Minister Shajan had approached us to try to address systemic discrimination or racism at uh, at a level both for Indigenous people, Black, uh, and people of color, along with lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, two spirited. And uh, and even uh, approach it from uh, gender bias. Uh, the challenge is that the uh, defense team is is faced with in the last couple years really um, are, are are huge to try to address the culture that's with embedded within within the military and the defense team, and it's not just within Canada. It's it's all of the allied nations that are dealing with this, these types of approaches of, of really discrimination. And I mentioned it earlier, fundamentally, mm -hmm. um, as we started looking into it, so, so we were asked back in last December, and I think we, we were only really able to get moving as late as, uh, as March or so. Um, and we started looking at some of the issues and, and we had engagement after engagement with different aspects internally. Um, and the whole point was to try to uh, uncover, identify um, issues of discrimination and particularly systemic discrimination within within the military, uh, both uh, the actual uh, Canadian Armed Forces and the uh, Department of National Defense, both sides of the house. So um, we had prepared an update for the minister for July. We provided that, and we're now in the process of, uh, of finalizing our report. We our final report, and that'll that'll be presented to the new minister, of course, uh, by uh, uh, end of December at the latest. And the goal is to mm -hmm. to really our goal has been to try to identify areas of opportunity that uh, the defense team should um, look at or investigate more, as well as provide some some expectations and recommendations on how they can move forward. In, in your answer or into response of your second question, and do I see it as a step towards reconciliation? Um, maybe. Um, and I say maybe because it really depends on what Canada does with it. Um, you know, right. um, historically, um, Canada hasn't necessarily followed up on recommendations that they have been given in the past. So if right. they're... I saw that Minister Anand asked for all yes, the recommendations yes. that have been yeah. developed over the years and, and to know why they hadn't been or in those cases, why they hadn't yeah, been. Yeah, we, we had asked that same question. So she'll, she'll be shocked with the answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's too bad. So what does reconciliation mean to you? Um, it's funny, uh, it, and particularly in light of the the uh, truth and reconciliation. I, I, like, it, it's hard for me to, to 
to reconcile reconciliation. Why is because fundamentally <laughs> reconciliation is a religious word. Um, and it, it, mm-hmm. to me, it, that alone still speaks to a colonial mentality. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I know there's a, there's a Roman Catholic sacrament because I was raised a Roman Catholic with my grandmother. Um, and it's really about confession, right? So is that all it is in Canada's eyes is to confess that they did wrong, receive a penance, say I'm sorry and move on? Um, is, is that the intent? Because that sometimes is what happens with, with reconciliation. Um, it's about, for some people, at least in the church, you, you say sorry, you do your, your penance, and then it's forgotten and you're still able to get into heaven, which is not really making amends. Um, another way mm-hmm. to look at reconciliation is, is reestablishing friendly relations. But did Canada always have friendly relations with First Nations? You have to first acknowledge that there are many, many different First Nations. There's not just one First Nation. Right. So Canada, and I should say the British or the French or even the Dutch before them, uh, established alliances with specific First Nations. So they had friendly relations with those. But then those nations, whether whether you call it Canada or France or, 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 uh, or England, uh, didn't honor those alliances. And that, therefore, was a breaking of that alliance. Further to that, there was then specific, concrete, focused, systemic, systematic attempts at assimilation and, uh, uh, and, and to a degree, cultural genocide. So all of those, obviously, uh, let's say, ruined the friendly relations that may have happened. So it's hard then to, to, for some First Nations communities to say, well, what are we reconciled? Is is it really a reestablishment, or is there need to be a specific effort at conciliation? Really, the you know the, the mm-hmm. idea of bringing uh, peace, harmony, and, and ending strife, uh, ending the attempts at assimilation, the attempts at uh, um, taking land or or to make things right, starting mm-hmm. that from the beginning. So to me, uh, it really is about conciliation that it should be. So that's how I view it is mm-hmm. reconciliation. And, and even if we want to use that term, uh, because that's the hot topic of the day, um, is, is really about making things right. How do we go about mm-hmm. making things right between the First Nations people and, and the people called that are Canadian? Yeah, that's a really good segue into my next <laughs> question, actually. Uh, so I was going to ask you about... Um, your top three things that settlers like me can do to contribute. So not to reconciliation, but to setting things straight to conciliation. The first that comes to mind uh, is education. I think the one, uh, the biggest thing that, that is lacking in everyday Canadians is, is, is uh, real education about First Nations people and Indigenous people. Um, that the ignorance is 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 astounding, and it's not a it's not mm-hmm. a fault. It's just that's the way we were taught, and it's and it's taught because it is a is it a colonial system that is systemic discrimination because it's driven right from the get go. And I'll give you a concrete example. My son, his he's in grade four. I have two children. One's twenty five, and the other one's uh, nine. So he's in grade four, and. Uh, He's in a French school in Montreal, and um, we had recently seen his history book, and it talked about how uh, all of it was centered around uh, France's uh, colonization of Quebec and and this St. Lawrence Mm -hmm. Valley and how the Iroquois were attacking them uh, in in other concepts like that um, and how their Mm -hmm. rule was to convert the people. So all of us. So what did you so, do? Then? Uh, we we called the school and we said, uh, uh, huh? it, it, "Can he be exempt from his class, or can we work something?" So uh, his school, luckily, is is very open to to working with us. So so actually, I'm going to be going into the school 
uh, this this month to teach them a class on on Kanyakeha to teach the kids on 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 that way. So we're trying to work with the school to provide, um, let's say, another perspective. And the school has agreed to to for each lesson period to offer another perspective from from a First Nations. Why is because the books are driven by ministerial directive. So that education being the number one reconciliation act that I wish every settler would do is learn about yourself, mm-hmm. learn about uh, um, First Nations. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll give you some concrete books that people can read. Uh, the, the 1996 Good. Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. I think every Canadian mm-hmm. citizen should read that. Light you know, it's light. <laughs> it's a huge book, but uh, there is so much work that went into trying to understand what the situation was back then. Um, and, mm-hmm. and from there, it gives a, a historical perspective of where we move forward. Uh, the, the, the calls to action in the TRC, I think, is, is a good aspect. Missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. For, for military side, the Senate Committee uh, um, report, uh, Senate Committee on Indig- or Veterans Affairs, and there's a report called Indigenous Veterans from Memories of Injustice to Lasting Recognition. And, I, and where do people find Google that report? It. All you have to do is okay. Google it. It's, it's very easy to find. And that report, I think it was 2019, it was, it was created. Excellent historical perspective of, of Indigenous veterans. Um, I would even suggest the the human rights complaint and the the issues that came from that for the for the child and family services, um, the Viennes mm-hmm. Commission, which had come up uh, in Quebec at least, and and there's similar commissions throughout in other areas. But all these give uh, even the Laurent Commission in Quebec gives perspectives. I'm saying all these things, but there there's a lot of information out there that can be accessed. But these are good concrete ones about what the real state is so number one education Mm -hmm. if you see it in the schools Mm -hmm. asking the school about it particularly in our own children Mm -hmm. because if 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 all we're taught is the same things uh, we as individuals will never change so our children are growing up with that same blind spots that we all had you know right and but as parents we're often in the hands of educators schools the provincial curriculum but we can take sure. action and you just provide a very good example and of we that. can always you know you can always ask the school uh, to submit to to the ministry there's no reason why uh, that can't happen you know, and, and be advocate and i guess that that's my second one um is be an active ally what does that mean mm-hmm. um for me is is being at active in advocacy the reality is Uh, First Nations people, um, we there's there's a concept called substantive equality, and it's the idea that um, uh, picture a fence and on and a wooden fence, and on the other side of that fence, mm-hmm. uh, there's a baseball game happening, and on our side of the fence, there's three children. One's a teenager, one is about ten, and one is about five. They're all at different heights. And they all can't see over the fence because they're all too short. The fence is too high. So equality mm-hmm. concept is they're all given a a, uh, a one foot box to stand on, and um, th- so they're all given that. And and the teenager now is able to see over, but the ten year old and the five year old can still not. So equality and and being equal doesn't always work for everybody because people are starting at different levels. And that's the situation with First right. Nations people, is that there has to be uh, an, an understanding that because of decades and, and, in fact, centuries of oppression and assimilation and, and inadequate funding and all of those other aspects that, that I mean, even business and uh, land use and um, rights of passage uh, and access to land, all of those are a... a are obstacles against um, let's say first nation success so from a from a larger scale either provincial or, or or federal perspective a lot of work has to be done to try to make amends but on a on a personal mm-hmm. level 
advocating on our behalf uh, is is needed. It can't be just our voices. Mm -hmm. It has to be from all citizens saying uh, there should be greater equality in, in Canada. Um, even mm -hmm. even to the terms of maybe committee creating committees. You know, uh, we always because we think about reconciliation and what does that mean. And you know, I I propose the idea of conciliation, but but how mm -hmm. can uh, communities band together to help support that because everybody asks the same thing well um it's great but i don't know what i should do you know it's it's the same concept of as a dump you know everybody needs a dump it's great to have a dump but i don't <laughs> want it in my backyard right somebody had said it uh, uh reconciliation is great until it affects me personally um you know mm -hmm. are people ready to give the land back because fundamentally mm -hmm. land is is a is a key point you look at you look at the military mm. and the military seized land from from first nations communities to build bases and it was right during mm -hmm. the build-up of world war one world war two uh, and they said yeah yeah well after the war is over we'll give the land back well the land was never given back right land uh, clan claims how many land claims are in existence that the provincial federal government ignore as long as possible because the longer they take and ignore it, the more other non-First Nations people occupy that land and it becomes harder and harder to, to make real negotiations. So all of those things are big, but at the end of the day, they impact and they will impact everyday Canadian citizens in some way. So the, the, the sooner mm -hmm. people get involved and take action, become advocates to make amends, to, to, to reconcile and reconcile, these friendly relations, the easier it's going to be in the long run. The final, I guess, suggestion I have is uh, is adopt an approach of giving thanks, um, land acknowledgments. Uh, both of those things to, to me are key. And why is because I think um, in, in, in Derek's opinion, there is a disconnect between... <laughs> um, society and the land we live on um our mm -hmm. our people are taught and it's through the honda Dekwa, we're taught to uh to thank the creator every day for the things that we have in creation you know um the people that are that are coming to our lives the mother earth the waters the, the fish the the plants whether it be the roots the medicines the berries the trees the birds the insects everything uh, the winds, the moon, the sun, all of these things we should be saying thanks for every single day. Because the further disconnect we get, the easier it is to abuse these things. The easier it is to go down the road of capitalism, let's say. And, and, and I'm not necessarily a socialist or a communist or anything like that. But at the end of the day, um, we have to get away from uh, just using the resources for personal profit and gain as opposed to use it for the benefit of all human beings because that first route of profit and gain is killing us the, the waters are getting destroyed the air is getting destroyed the land is getting destroyed if we don't reestablish that connection to the land and to to, to creation we're going to lose it and we're going to lose this planet uh, my nephew is is at the summit in Glasgow, and he's advocating on behalf mm -hmm. of First Nations people in the community. We had sent four young people to the uh, to that uh, to the conference. Yeah, from from Hawaii. Hawaii. My, my son uh, oh, Zekete, uh Montour is there, and um, mm -hmm. and we're trying to send those messages to to that change has to happen and it has to be driven now before it's too late. And I hope that we can adopt that approach. But an everyday uh, citizen, an everyday person, yes, today's society, people blow up and, and argue, but, but we're known that if we don't help, I guess, take care of each other and teach each other, um, we're going to be lost as society. So to me, though, that's about reconciliation because it's about reconciling our own relationship with, uh, with our, our uh, planet and our creation. Yeah. And giving thanks and, and doing the land, land acknowledgement helps us reflect and Absolutely. connect. 
That's some really good guidance. Thank you so much, Derek. Niawa. Yo. That was a very, very interesting conversation. Thank you for having me, Alan. It was, uh, I, I hope that I, I, I was able to articulate my thoughts on this. It's, it's some big topics, big discussions. And I hope that this conversation mm-hmm. continues. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful to Derek Montour for joining us. I'm especially grateful for his reframing of reconciliation. Talking about it as reconciliation implies a re-establishment of something, that there were friendly, mutually respectful or equal relations to begin with. We know, unfortunately, that in most cases throughout our common history, there were not. The focus must be on making things right, which, as Derek puts it, is simply conciliation. This is an important idea and we'll be talking more about it in a few weeks. Like many of the people I've spoken with so far, Derek has also emphasized the importance of education, both for us as listeners and also for our children. His words stuck with me. If every generation is taught the same things, we as individuals will never change. Our children are growing up with the same blind spots that we all had. So ask your children about what they're learning and talk to their school if you need to. And for your own learning, Derek has pointed us in some really helpful directions. The 1996 report of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report and its 94 calls to action, as well as the report from the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. He also recommends the 2019 report called Indigenous Veterans from Memories of Injustice to Lasting Recognition, which is especially important for today's theme. A quick web search will bring up all of these, and reading them will bring us all closer to becoming active allies, which is Derek's second call to action. Lastly, take some time to reflect on your relationship with land. Giving thanks and being stewards of the land is essential for not just better relationships between the communities of this country, but also for our survival as a species. That's all for this episode. Thank you as always for joining me. Until next time. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto in Canada 2020. The show is edited by Aaron Reynolds and produced by me, Eileen Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jarrah. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Levier and the music was produced by Marius Miller. <laughs>